The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. my pleasure to introduce our guest preacher this evening. We've been blessed in recent months to have many guest preachers from our neighboring sister churches, and tonight we have Kevin Sheehan, the assistant pastor at Reformed Presbyterian Church in Ephrata, a relative newcomer, uh, but a faithful man who's come to bring God's word. So we offer him to you. Please give him your attention. Thank you, Tucker. It's great to be back with you again. It's such a beautiful church and a beautiful building. It's certainly my honor to be here tonight and to proclaim God's word to you. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Matthew and chapter 6. I'll be focusing tonight mainly on the last verse of our passage, verse 13, but we'll be reading verses 7 through 13. And when you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. John Calvin gives us five rules of prayer, which roughly parallel the petitions in the Lord's Prayer that we just read. I'm going to give you four of Calvin's five rules now, and I'm going to make you wait until the very end for the fifth rule, just to make sure you stay awake. The first rule of prayer, according to John Calvin, is reverence. If we are to pray, we must do so with reverence, a fear of God, a healthy understanding of the majesty of God, which frees us from all earthly affections. As the hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now we aren't Gnostics, we aren't saying that all matter and material is bad, and we should just sort of attain some sort of spiritual, mystical being, but instead of fixating on the near at hand and here and now, we gain a greater sense of God's transcendence and grandeur. And in verse 9, the Lord's Prayer opens with our Father in heaven, reminding us where God resides. Hallowed be your name. There's a reverence, a holy awe that we are not to approach God casually As I teach my young sons to pray, 
One of the things I teach them is you have to sit up. You have to either hold your hands or fold hands because God deserves our respect. The first rule is reverence. Calvin's second rule of prayer is submission. If you look at verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done. Not mine, but his. Now we can ask God for things. He wants us to ask him for things. But ultimately we need to bow the knee to his will. Just as Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. As Calvin says, we must abandon all thoughts of our own glory. And as John the Baptist says, he must increase and I must decrease. And the reformers cried out, Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. We don't pray so that we can be glorified. Now this may not change what we pray for. We might still pray for the same things. Health, relationships, a new job. But it changes why we pray for them. That it's not so that we might gain convenience or preference or prestige, but we pray for these things so that God might be glorified through them. Calvin's third rule is dependence. We see in verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. It's an acknowledgement that we are not self-sufficient. Now in our day and age, unlike theirs, most of us do not live in need of daily bread. Most of us can go home right now and there's enough food in your refrigerator and pantry to last you a week. But yet we can still admit that there are things that are beyond our control. There are forces in the world that are just beyond our control. And there's also forces within our own hearts that are beyond our control. So from both within and without, we are in desperate need of God. God holds our very breath in his hand. And we can cry out and we can pray and we can sing, I need thee every hour. Lord, every hour I need thee. So we come before God in a posture of dependence. Calvin's fourth rule is confidence. That we have a sure hope. That we can trust God. We can trust that he hears us. We can trust that he cares for us. Even when he does not answer in the manner or the timing in which we desire. Because we can trust in a God that forgives our debts. And if he can forgive even our sins, then surely we can trust him with all those smaller things of life. Now the fifth prayer, the fifth rule of prayer, you have to wait till the end. So hold that thought for just a minute. It's an old Dutch reformer named Wilhelmus Brockel. He lived in the 17th century and part of the early 18th century. He was a pastor at a number of churches. He was affectionately known as Father Brockel. And Father Brockel looked at the Lord's Prayer and he divided it into two parts. He says, the first three petitions concern the weighty matters of God, of God's holiness and God's mission and God's will. Hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. 
And the second three petitions, Father Brockle noted, they concern the believer becoming equipped to bring the first part to fruition. Give us our daily bread. Grant us forgiveness. Keep us from temptation. So that we might go out and do the will of God. In other words, what he says is don't pray it unless you're willing to do it. Oh Lord, may your gospel spread to the nations. Well, are you going to pray, are you going to give, or are you going to go? Oh Lord, someone needs to teach this younger generation. Well, I actually happen to notice in here that they're looking for helpers in the two-year-old and four-year-old Sunday school classes. Mary Jo Rizzo, so you need to contact. Oh Lord, may your kingdom come in Lancaster County. James says in his epistle, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and be filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Now surely prayer is a huge part of the way that God works. And we must engage in it, but we must also be willing to be his hands and feet. We must pray with the spirit of, here I am, send me. And as a church that I know well, many years ago, the, the pastor moved on to a different congregation. And the church struggled in the months afterwards to figure out what direction they wanted to take as a congregation. And it became contentious and divisive. And it got to the point where they called upon a man who had been pastor of that church 20 years prior, who had since retired, and they said, will you come back and be our interim pastor and help us through this difficult season? And he said, sure. And he was there for a few weeks when a woman came up to him and said, pastor, you need to fix this church. And he looked right at her and said, you're right. And I'm going to start with you. So be careful what you pray. Be careful what you ask for. And be willing to be the hands and feet. Be willing to be the instrument through which God answers your prayer. If we turn our attention to the last verse, verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This comes right on the heels of Jesus saying, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Knowing ourselves to be sinners, we know the need for the gospel in verse 12 that we need to be forgiven of our debts and sins. And in verse 13, knowing ourselves to be sinners, we pray that we wouldn't fall again. Verse 13 is the prayer of an honest and humble heart that knows itself all too well. There's two parts to that petition. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. There's both a negative and a positive. There's an internal evil, temptation rooted in my desires, my flesh, and an external evil from the outside world, the outside evil forces that press in against us. And if these verses weren't so familiar to us, they would be slightly shocking. Lead us not into, what do we so often pray? If we're honest, 
lead us not into harm's way. Lead not our children into harm's way. Lead us not into poverty. Lead us not into political impotence or social mockery. Now, Jesus says it's temptation to sin that ought to be your main concern. Lead us not into temptation. Because you see, Jesus did all those things. He went straight into harm's way. He knew what it was like to live in poverty. He knew what it was like to live under political impotence. And he was so certainly mocked publicly. So if you want to be like Jesus, you don't pray that those things will never happen to you. What you pray is that in the midst of those things, you would not be tempted to sin. And then he says, deliver us from... And I can almost picture Peter being there. Peter, who seems like the kind of guy who would always finish sentences for you, would just sort of jump in and blurt something out. I can see Peter listening to this saying, deliver us from, and just saying, Rome! Deliver us from Rome! Yes! And Jesus is saying, no, Peter. Your biggest concern should not be Rome. Your biggest concern should be a deliverance from evil. Not political enemies, military enemies, nasty weather, but deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation forces us to acknowledge certain realities. First, that there's the reality of sin. It's the reality that temptation is strong and our flesh is weak. It forces us to at least go through the motions of proclaiming a hatred of sin. That we would say, oh Lord, lead us not into temptation. I don't want to go there again. It forces us to acknowledge that we have a love for communion with God. And that we don't want it to be interrupted by any temptation, any sin in our life. Oh Lord, keep me from that. And we acknowledge that we have faith in God's care. Why bother praying if God doesn't care? But God does care. Keep us from temptation. Proverbs 26, 11. It's one of those classic Proverbs. Some of you might have this stenciled on some old ship lap above your mantle you bought from Hobby Lobby. It says, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. I'm going to put that at the end of my emails from now on. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Falling back into the same temptation time and time and time again to the same sin over and over is like a dog that returns to its vomit. It's an appropriately gross metaphor. Father Brockle would jump in and say, yes, we should pray to not be led into temptation, but we should also not lead ourselves into temptation lest we be like that dog. Sometimes God answers our prayers by revealing our own weaknesses. Father Brockle says, we lead ourselves into temptation, first of all, when we don't flee those circumstances in which we have frequently fallen. You know that there are certain circumstances and certain situations in your life that when they arise, 
it tempts you to sin. And when you don't flee from those, you're leading yourself into temptation. I like to say nothing good happens after 11 p.m. Whether you're talking to youth, whether you're watching TV, in front of a screen, whatever, usually after 11 p.m. nothing good happens. Just go to bed. There are certain people you should avoid, certain places you shouldn't go, certain websites you shouldn't visit, certain stores you shouldn't go into with a credit card. Flee those circumstances. He also says we lead ourselves into temptation when we use lawful and ordinary things too frequently and thoughtlessly. When good things become ultimate things, idolatry is right around the corner. It might be exercise, it might be entertainment, it might be the NFL. There's the Eagles had an afternoon game today, so you're all here. It might be work, all good things. But done too frequently and too thoughtlessly, it can lead us into temptation. We lead ourselves into temptation when we cherish vain thoughts and find our delight in them. This just leads to pride and thinking too highly of ourselves. These are all things Father Brockle says we must not lead ourselves into. That may be God's way of answering that prayer, at least not into temptation. Well, here are some ways that you can avoid temptation. But deliver us from evil. You may have a footnote that says evil or the evil one. Grammatically, in the Greek, it could go either way. So I'm not going to tell you which one to think because I don't know either. But deliver us from evil. But I think what Jesus has in mind is from Ephesians 6, starting in verse 12. It tells us exactly what kind of evil we're up against. After saying to put on the whole armor of God, Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's what we're up against. Not flesh and blood. It's not the liberals. It's not the conservatives. It's not the commies. It's not the cowboys fans. It's not the whoever. Those people are not the evil that we're up against. They're enslaved to the same evil that we are. They're fellow image bearers. With the same sin as you and the same need of grace as you. Paul goes on in Ephesians 6. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. And he walks through that whole beautiful passage. And at the end of it, in verse 18, it says, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So he couches the entire armor of God in this, in this canopy of prayer. Paul lived under the Roman Empire. He knew all about evil forces knew that people and governments can only do so much. The real concern that we have, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, those are only combated, not with political means or financial means, but with the armor of God. By truth, by righteousness, by peace, by faith, by our salvation and the word of God. And all of it supported and undergirded with prayer. That's how we fight against evil. How do we know that God will answer this prayer? Because it seems like 
You've had times in your life where you've prayed, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. And that prayer seemed to fall flat. And it seems like the bad guys win sometimes. So how do we have confidence that God will answer this prayer? Think about the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus says, sit here while I go over there and pray. And what do they do? They fall asleep. Not just once, not just twice. Three times those guys fell asleep. Jesus says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. But instead they fell asleep. We're a lot like them, aren't we? If we're not actively disobeying and denying God, then we're falling asleep. Too apathetic to care. And they did fall into temptation. And they did deny him. And they did flee from him and abandon him. But Jesus delivered them. In Matthew 26, verse 2, Jesus says, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And in 27, 2, it says, And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. And then in verse 26, Then he released for them Barabbas, having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Our deliverance from evil because of his deliverance to evil. Our deliverance from evil because of his deliverance to evil. That's why we have confidence. Because God did not forsake his only son. God gave us everything. God came in the person of Jesus Christ and allowed himself to be delivered over to evil in our place. And achieved an ultimate deliverance. It should have been us sweating it out in Gethsemane. It should have been us being arrested, handed over to Pilate. It should have been us beaten, thorns shoved on our head, having God turn his back on us on the cross and killed. We deserved it, but he took it. And because of that, we have deliverance. A deliverance from our sin. And so now we have confidence that God hears our prayers because we believe the gospel. And that brings us back to Calvin's fifth rule. Do you know what the fifth rule of prayer is for Calvin? The fifth rule is that there are no rules. There are no rules. There's no magic formula. You can't just heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles. You can't manipulate God into getting what you want. It's all grace. That's why we pray in Jesus' name because it is on his account that we can have the audacity to approach God with anything. But because of Jesus and because God has adopted us as his children, we can approach him in confidence in Jesus' name. Tim Keller wrote a book called Prayer. Some of you maybe have read it. He tells the story here. The American preacher R.A. Torrey tells about a man he met when Torrey was preaching in Melbourne, Australia. 
One day as he was on the platform getting ready to speak, he was given an anonymous note. It was an appeal to address the problem of unanswered prayer. In his sermon, the note read, Dear Dr. Tory, I am in great perplexity. I have been praying for a long time for something that I am confident is according to God's will, but I do not get it. I have been a member of the Presbyterian Church for 30 years. I have tried to be a consistent one all the time. I have been superintendent in the Sunday school for 25 years and an elder in the church for 20 years, and yet God does not answer my prayer, and I cannot understand it. Can you explain it to me? Tory recognized the subtext of the argument and took a plunge. He walked to the podium, read the note, and used it to make a crucial point. He said that the problem was not hard to see. This man thinks that because he has been a consistent church member for 30 years, a faithful Sunday school superintendent for 25 years, and an elder in the church for 20 years, that God is under some obligation to answer his prayer. He is really praying in his own name. We must give up any thought that we have any claims upon God. But Jesus Christ has great claims on God. And we should go to God in our prayers, not on the ground of any goodness in ourselves, but on the ground of Jesus Christ's claims. After the close of the meeting, the writer of the note approached Tory and revealed himself. And he said, you've hit the nail on the head. We cannot go to God in our own name. There's no room for pride in the Christian life. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left the crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. There's no magic formula. But the amazing thing is is that he's already done more than we could ask or dare to imagine. He's already secured ultimate deliverance through Jesus Christ. And so now indeed we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. I'm going to ask us to close by praying together the Lord's Prayer from Matthew 6. So let us all pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.